Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, The Jew in the Bush by the Brothers Grimm, uh, also known as The Jew Among the Thorns or The Jew in the Thorn Bush. There's probably a few other titles. I first encountered it as The Jew Among the Thistles, but... Right, right. I, I think Thorns has more resonance for some reason. Uh, uh, yes, indeed. Uh, Although... May, we'll get into that, I'm sure. Okay. <laughs> um, you, you, uh, this is too long for us to read uh, within the podcast, but um, you said you had a summary? Yeah, I first became aware of this... Uh, when one of my students in a fantasy class gave me um, a reference to a 1989 article in the international edition of the Jerusalem Post. The article is titled A Grim Tale, An Israeli Scholar Has Produced a Study of the Fairy Tales of the Grimm Brothers and Their Connection with German Folk Heritage, Antisemitism and Nationalism. And in order to this this lengthy for a newspaper article um, piece focuses on this story. And so in order to make the readers able to follow the story, the writer of the article produces a summary. Uh, I think maybe it would help if I read it. And then, Jesse, before I say anything else that the article reports from the scholar or I suggest any of my ideas, I'd like you to say whether or not you find this an adequate summary. There may be other things that you see here. Certainly there are other things. Okay. So these are the words of the article writer, not Grimm's Tales, although the article writer sort of takes up the rhetoric of a Grimm tale. To cut a long story very short, our hero is an upright, hardworking, kind-hearted servant who gives a dwarf the only three crowns he has. He is rewarded with a magic fiddle that sets all who hear it dancing and unable to stop so long as the music is played. Roaming the countryside, he comes across the Jew, who attempts to cheat him. While the old Jew creeps into a bush, The lad takes up his fiddle, getting the Jew to spring about in the prickly tangle till the thorns comb through his beard, rip off his clothes, and tear his flesh so that the blood ran down. The lad walks off with the Jew's purse, but later the half-naked, wily Jew goes to the judge and complains of being robbed. As our hero is about to be hanged for theft, he starts fiddling again. By the time it's all over, the miserable Jew, the prostrate Jew prostrate on the ground, wretchedly confesses his villainy and is sent to the gallows himself. That's the, That's story. the end of the story. Yeah. This is okay. this is this is uh that is the story. There are some missing pieces um, uh, that I think impact uh, the rest of the narrative. Um, so for instance, I'll just read the first sentence here. A faithful servant had worked hard for his master, a thrifty farmer for three long years and had been paid no wages. He asked for his pay and he's given, uh, in some versions it's three farthings 
uh, three crowns, I think it is in this one. And then um, he's satisfied with that. He then very quickly meets a dwarf who says, uh, hey, why are you so happy? And the dwarf says, uh, he says to the dwarf, I have saved up my three years wages, uh, year earnings, and have it all safe in my pocket. What's interesting is right away, just from the very beginning, I start saying, well, that's actually not what happened. He didn't save them up, right? He was just right. finally paid. And then this thrifty farmer sounds like he's not actually very thrifty. He's more like, I'm keeping you as a servant, but uh, I'm not going to pay you. <laughs> it's, so there's all sorts of things going on that undermine a lot of the, the stuff. That's, uh, this is a very confusing story to me, not in, in the text. But in what is going on here? Because this is this seems like rabidly anti-Semitic, and also like who would want to live in a world like this? Because nobody here gets justice. Nobody. Well, I guess. Well, I agree with you, but. Um I guess one has to ask what one what constitutes justice. I notice that the the uh, in the story, not the summary, uh, the dwarf asks. Oh, excuse me, the, the the Jew asks the the young lad, the faithful servant, mm-hmm. which makes him sound in given the place of publication and the publishers uh, makes him sound like a Christian, right? especially since there's one character who is identified as the Jew, not even a Jew. Um, but he represents an entire type, right? The Jew. Um, and the Jew sees this marvelous bow that the man has. Uh, there's a bird, uh, a songbird, a songbird in a tree. Now, songbirds are not particularly um, terrific for eating because there's not a whole lot of meat on a songbird. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a, a wild turkey. It's not a big pheasant. It's 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 a songbird. The Jew says, "Ah, oh, what I would give to have such a bird." Now, in the 19th century, people did in fact lime twigs to catch birds and then take them and put them in cages and listen to them singing. Mm-hmm. Right? But what is this? faithful servant do. He takes the bow that will always strike its target that he's gotten from the dwarf for an act of generosity. The faithful servant has given away all of his worldly goods to the dwarf. Um, But I think the dwarf is sort of devilish because uh, he gives him uh, interesting gifts. Um, He takes it and he shoots the bird and the bird falls into a bush. So the Jew puts his hand into his pocket. He said, I'd give anything. He puts his hands back into his pocket to crawl into the bush to get the bird. At that point in the story, the narrator tells us this, that the Jew has decided not to pay the, the lad for the bird. He's just going to keep the bird. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the Jew, that's how we know the Jew is a cheater. Yep. Right. That's how we know. Now, if I were going to crawl into a bush or let's say a, a bramble patch, I too would 
take my hand out of my pocket. So I had both my knees and my hands to use to do the crawling, right? I mean, I'm not going to put my hand in my pocket to hang on to my money and go three appendages in. I'm going to use four. And I'm not going to pay for the bird until I come out with the bird. But this Jew doesn't have the chance to come out with the bird because the faithful servant has decided that the Jew is trying to uh, rob him. And so he sets him dancing with the fiddle. And then he won't stop until he extorts from the Jew every single bit of money that he has. When, When the Jew goes to the judge, the judge... I am glad to say, recognizes that the the boy's story that he didn't rob the Jew. He just took the money that the Jew paid to learn to dance, that that seems highly unlikely and sentences the lad to die. Well, the third wish is to be able to say things that everyone will do them. So he says, could I play my fiddle? The judge says yes. And in fact, everybody, not just the not not just the Jew, everybody winds up prostrate on the uh, on the ground and the the boy goes can go off. So in that moment of prostration, the Jew admits that the money he had in his pocket was from having cheated somebody. Interesting. We don't know whether he really did or he didn't. We only know yeah, that he said you can't it. trust anything in this story. Exactly. But what we can know is that without knowing anything more than that the fellow is a Jew, the society, with the, the momentary exception of a judge who tries to listen to what is knowable and reasonable about human behavior, the society basically says, well, if you're a Jew, you're a robber and you deserve to die which is one of the reasons that I like the title The Jew in the Bush, although I first came across this as The Jew Among the Thistles, because there is something here that is reminiscent of the story of the the, uh, sacrifice of Isaac. Mm. God says to Abraham, you know, you have to make this sacrifice, this thing that is so valuable to you, the son you finally were able to have in your old age, and because Abraham listens is an obedient servant of God. He is a faithful servant. He goes up Mount Moriah and uh, begins to make the, the sacrifice. He makes the the altar, but before he can light it and kill his son and and light it for this sacrifice, an angel says, "No, no, look in the bush behind you." And there, in the bush behind him, is a lamb that has been entangled in the thorns. And that lamb becomes the sacrifice that stands for the son and that fulfills the obligation of Abraham to continue being a faithful servant. What has happened here is that with the help of the dwarf in this country, this Christian country, the Jew has been made into the sacrifice that will fulfill the obligation of the faithful servant. There's, it's resonant. There's, there's um, so many times in the story where I'm, wait, that's not right. So in, on page 96 in our version, uh, the second paragraph starts, our honest friend, 
journeyed on his way too, and if he was merry before, he was ten times more so now, right? So, he's honest, we're told, and he's our honest friend, as in we're conspiratorial with the narrator who's giving us this description of the the faithful servant, the countryman, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then uh, immediately we're confronted by this this uh, Jew who wants to cheat the man. He would cheat the man, so he put his money in his pocket. Um, except, as you point out, why does the Jew want the bird? It's not to eat it. It is to hear it sing, to take it home, so it can enliven his day. And how does the how does the uh, countryman, the honest friend, our honest friend, know this that he's about to cheat him? Well, the narrator tells us so, right? Right. And then, what have What's I the- done to be treated this way? What hast thou done? Wow! Look, notice the language becomes biblical. Why thou hast shaved my many a poor soul close enough? Said the other. How does he know this? Just because he's a Jew, clearly, right? Thou art only meeting thy reward. He's talking like a judge, right? And then when he goes to the judge, he he lies, right? And <laughs> he he says the whole thing is it, this is like just complete injustice, and it goes right you mean, back to you mean the young lad lies, not the yeah, Jew. the lad so, lies. Yes, he so, does. Uh, at, Our at, honest young man. When I was first reading this story, I thought, okay, we're going along, and and he's happy, even though I think he got shafted from his his employer, and also he's he's damaging his employer because his employer is has the impression that he's coming back. He's never coming back, right? Right. Um, and then he he meets a dwarf who would who who's like, why are you so happy? He says, because I got money. And then he says, well, give me your money and I'll give you something good. And he's like, okay. <laughs> it's like, he's a naive, a simple, actually, simple-hearted. Does, I, don't, I don't think he actually offers a trade. I think he says, right, you're right, you're right. He doesn't, I need your money. Yes. So he shows what would be considered Christian charity. Right. He's called simple-hearted. So he took yes. out the three counts and gave it a crown for each year's service. And then he gives the dwarf randomly these three crowns he has. And then the dwarf says, ah, I see you're a very good man, so here's your reward. And I grant you three wishes, right? One for each crown. So choose whatever you like. The countryman rejoiced at his good luck and said, I like many things better than money. First, I will have a bow that will bring down everything I shoot at. Second, a fiddle that will set everyone dancing the har- that hears me play upon it. Well, this turns out to be another weapon, right? The first one's a weapon. The second one's a weapon that he uses to uh, attack the Jew with, and then the whole courtroom. And then thirdly, I should like to be able to make everyone grant me whatever I ask. This is also a weapon, right? That he can use to do anything to anybody with. And also it's cheating. His third wish is for infinite wishes, Exactly. This is the exact opposite of justice. So uh, I, I, I'm not sure what to make of it. Like, are, are, at the end of the story, are we supposed to reject? Uh, uh, you know, if you're sitting around and your mom's uh, nice German ladies reading you this story or telling you this folktale, 
Are you supposed to say, Mom, this story is horrible? Or are you supposed to uh, say, oh, yes, and Jews are bad? I don't get, I don't understand, like, how could anyone accept this? Well, um, the role the Grimm brothers have in determining the reception of the story is something that would require us to know more about um, reviews of their work. But I can tell you this. The newspaper article I referenced mentions that this story is not original with the Grimm brothers. It does not mention the source, however. But I know from other readings what the source is, because we actually have access to the Grimm brothers' library. They lived together, one of them married, one of them not. They were both professors. And um, their library included books of folktales, including a volume of Italian folktales. And in that volume of Italian folktales, there is a story in which the villain of the piece is not, in fact, mm. a Jew, but a Catholic monk. Right. Yes, I saw I saw a notation of that, too. And I thought that was interesting because this this really changes the story, doesn't it? Well, it means that what we have in Italy is, I mean, yes, of course, Jesse, what we find is that the story is being used in Italy as an anti-clerical satire, uh, which rests on the notion that in 19th century Italy is priest-ridden, mm -hmm. and that we have these mendicants walking around, these monks who do no work, but they want stuff. And by golly, they don't deserve to have stuff. They're just taking from us. Now, the Jews don't quite do that. They may be overly sharp as business people, some of them, but a lot of them are, in fact, confined to ghettos and, you know, can't own property. And, you know, they're working like crazy. They are the underclass, in fact, in many places. And yet they're being treated as if they were these wanderers who claim that they have a God-given right to the money that the good people in their society as a whole offer. It turns out that in 1857, when the Grimm brothers produced a definitive selection of their work, uh, these stories were first published in, I guess, three volumes between about 1811 and 1822. In 1857, when they produced a volume like, These Are Our Favorites, this story was among them. Hmm. As the Enlightenment went on, um, it became more and more difficult. And in fact, um, in the Weimar period, when Germans were trying very hard to be democratic in the light of their defeat in World War One and throwing off the empire, um, this story disappeared from editions of the Grimm brothers. And after 1933, when the Nazis controlled publication, this story came roaring back. Yeah, it is. It, it, it's it's so arbitrarily anti-semitic that it feels like like a slapdash nazi story it does but it turns out of course and this is why it's so powerful that it's not slapdash at all it's 
it's hanging anti-Semitic bones on an anti, uh, anti-Semitic meat on a skeleton that used to support an anti-clerical argument. But in fact, the skeleton itself is one in which the, the supernatural character um, would want to be to have power over us. But by golly, we're just good people and we deserve to have it. Not this, not the character. Another example of this is Rumpelstiltskin, mm-hmm. right? Rumpelstiltskin saves the day uh, for that lazy but good-looking uh, woman whose mother lied about her ability to spin straw into gold. And he had no reason whatsoever to give her anything but but the other end of the bargain that he made. But he agrees that if you can find my name, um, then I won't uh, take anything from you. And she finds his name by chicanery, at the end of which, when she says his name, he gets so furious that he screws him, he spins around and screws himself into the earth. Uh, why is it that Rumpelstiltskin, who might look an awful lot like the old Jew, why is it that Rumpelstiltskin's death is supposed to be a good thing? Because these stories support the notion that if you identify with the dominant culture, you deserve whatever you get. And if you have to be immoral or, you know, unethical, well, of course you do, because it's a world with all sorts of evil people like Jews and dwarves and Rumpelstiltskin. It's a very satisfying skeleton of a story. And the Grimm brothers just put certain meat on that those bones. Um, much, I think, needs to be discovered, if we can, about whether they simply reflected an anti-Semitism in their culture or they helped to enlarge it. Um, my guess is it's some of both. There's, uh, I talked about the title, and it's, in our version it's The Jew in the Bush, but I was saying I, I like The Jew Among the Thorns or The Jew, uh, the Jew Among the Thorn Bush better because it emphasizes the thorns and i was thinking about that crown of thorns that jesus gets and how this is kind of a similar situation that the crown of thorns is supposed to be like here's your crown jew enjoy it right king of the jews we've got a a situation here where it's possible that he shouldn't pay him because as you as you point out nobody really wants to eat songbirds they want them for their songs so when he kills it all he's done is inconvenience him and made him have to pay for it but once assuming that he was going to pay for it he shouldn't maybe have had to because it's like saying uh, I'd like to buy that car and then the guy shoots your car that you want to buy and says, there, now pay for it. You know, that's not right. what you wanted. You, uh, uh, the, the, It's ridiculous. And so once he's in this situation of having to crawl into the, the bush to humiliate himself, right, um, he he's then tortured. He's made to dance, right? Again, it's like 
somebody says dance and they shoot at your feet that's not fun that's cruelty and and that you know having his beard torn and having his clothes torn it's it's sadistic and it, it, it almost like it's it speaks like um this is training for evil this whole story feels like training for evil it's like if you enjoyed this you're a monster i agree the, the 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 one of the reasons that I think that the story is not well known um, in these days is that it really is monstrous. Another reason is that in moving from the clerical um, target to the Jewish target, the Grimm brothers have let slip in a fundamental contradiction that I am sure they did not want. That is, the crown of thorns is indeed a, an insult. It is an act of sarcasm. Yep. Here is your crown, um, as you said, Jesse, and quite rightly. The thing is that that crown, um, we see it in Catholic countries all the time on roadside crosses that have written above, have a plaque on the, the upper uh, bar of the cross uh, that says INRI, Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judeorum, right? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That also is meant as ridicule. Mm -hmm. Ha, this is the King of the Jews, and ha, this is his thorn. But that, that image is a recognition that Jesus was a Jew. So I think if people look as deeply as you and I are attempting in this story, they will hit a contradiction because the Jew, the only Jew in this story, is the one who is being mistreated and being given a crown of thorns and is dying because of the, the witness, the false witness of the so-called faithful servant. And if you, if you really want to think of this as a crown of thorns, then what we've done here is had the world at large, again, kill our savior. And that sort of undercuts the notion of this as anti-Semitic. Um, but I don't believe for a minute that that's what the Grimm brothers wanted. I think they want us to feel pleasure at the justice that is finally meted out by having the young man keep the hundred crowns that the Jew robbed and the Jew having to die. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it is a, it's like a mad power fantasy because even the, the justice system that's in, in place in this, in this nation, everyone there is made to serve this man's word. He wants something, he can command it. I command you to dance. Now I'm making you dance with my... And com I command you to confess. Where did you get your money? He doesn't restore that money. He's not, uh, he's not looking for justice. He's looking for power. Indeed. And an and objective, from my viewpoint, an objective reading of the behavior of the characters involved would tell us that the judge is a just man, 
the dwarf is um, perhaps a trickster, but at least is responding to an act of generosity. Mm-hmm. But the farmer is a miser. The faithful servant is a liar and a murderer. Yep. Everything he asks for, as you say, is weapons or weaponized. Um, and the people who see this execution, we're told, came to look at it. The death of the Jew was going to be, of the young man, was going to be their entertainment. And so they are equally pleased as long as they get to see more death. That's an extraordinary recognition for uh, people who are co-religionists in a creed that promises eternal life. Even, even, even worse at the end here. So I'll just I want to read these two, two sections. One, but the countryman seized his fiddle and struck up the merry tune, and at first, at the first note, judge, clerks, and jailer, all were set a going. All began capering, and no one could hold the Jew. On the second note, the hangman let his prisoner go and danced also. And by the time he had played the first bar of the tune, all were dancing together, judge, court, Jew, and all the people who had followed to look on. At first the thing was merry and joyous enough, but when it had gone on a while and there seemed to be no end of either playing or dancing, all began to cry out and beg him to leave off. But he stopped not a whit, the more for his begging, till the judge not only gave him his life, but paid him back the hundred crowns. This is, again, extortion. And then, listen to this. Then he called to the Jew and said, Tell us now, you rogue, where you got that gold, and I shall play on for your amusement only. I stole it, said the Jew. Before all the people, I acknowledge that I stole it, and that you earned it fairly. You earned it. It's like, it's... I can make you, I can make you uh, say, please punch me some more, sir, and that I deserve to be punched, sir. And the countryman stopped his fiddle and let the Jew take his place in the gallows. What a horrible story. It is. And you and I read it one way. We see this as the horrors of anti-Semitism. The question that we need to pursue is, was it in fact an enticement to anti-Semitism? And I'm afraid that with the continuing problem of understanding the role of this extraordinary story in Western culture, there will probably always be more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep.